Hello, and welcome to From God to Us, the podcast where we deal with biblical studies and biblical issues in order to attempt to answer people's questions about God, about the Bible, about people and life and cultural issues with an attempt to give you application for daily living. We are in our current series titled, How We Got the Bible, and we have looked at several different issues. We dealt with the authority of the Bible. We've looked at the canon of Scripture and how do we know which books of the Bible belong in the Bible, and we looked at some of the books that are not accepted and why we don't accept those, and now we're dealing with the text of the Bible, dealing with the Hebrew and the Greek text itself. We're currently looking at the Greek text, and last week we talked about uh, the, some of the history of the Greek text. Today we're going to cover the subject of the transmission and confidence that we have in the Greek text. And the reason we do this is because there's a lot of objections to the text itself. There's an article I mentioned earlier by a gentleman named Kurt Eichenwald titled, The Bible So Misunderstood, It's a Sin. It's a very long article, and it's a scathing attack on the Bible. He makes numerous, numerous statements about the Bible, about its text. In one particular part of the article, he is talking about the book of Second Peter and the problems with the book of Second Peter. And this is what he says. Even in ancient times, many Christian leaders proclaimed Second Peter to be a forgery, an opinion almost universally shared by biblical scholars today. Well, that's a false statement. Yes, there are some people who do not believe that Peter, the Apostle Peter, wrote 2 Peter, and thus it's a forgery. However, it is not almost universally shared by biblical scholars today. That is a false statement. This article is full of those types of exaggerations. Another example is he is referring to, later in the article, to 1 Timothy. Is 1 Timothy a forgery? And at the end of the paragraph regarding 1 Timothy, he says, Most biblical scholars agree that Paul did not write 1 Timothy. Well, this again is a false statement. If he said some biblical scholars agree, that would be true. But saying most, that's not true. There are many, many, many Greek scholars today who affirm that Paul did write 1 Timothy. This is the type of thing that is in this article. Over and over again, he exaggerates. The most important thing to note about this article, he has absolutely no references to any of the statements that he makes. There are no references to this article. He's just making these statements, throwing things out, many of the things that are half-truths, some things that are just not true at all. And this is the type of thing that people use to discredit the Bible, and it's the type of thing they use when it comes to the Greek text itself. We're going to look today at the transmission of the Greek text a little bit more and how we got to that. I want to begin today first with talking about the textus receptus. The word textus receptus simply means the received text. Back in the early 16th century, a Dutch scholar named Erasmus began to work on publishing a modern Greek text so that people could translate the New Testament. We talked earlier about as the Enlightenment came in and interest in learning came in, there became a, a more of an interest in the Greek text itself and translating the Bible. And so this gentleman, Erasmus, wanted to create a modern Greek text. In the process, he used five or six very late Greek manuscripts from the 12th century to form his Greek New Testament. 
So in other words, he didn't use a lot of Greek text. He used very late ones, and we'll talk about the significance of that in a little bit. He had one 10th century text, but he really didn't use it. So he took these five or six Greek texts, compared them to one another, and then produced his Greek text. For this book, he relied uh, heavily upon the Latin Vulgate in order to sometimes to translate back into Greek. It just There were places where he didn't have complete Greek text or he wasn't sure about it. Uh, anyway, he published uh, several editions of the Greek New Testament in, uh, from 1515 up to 1527. His third edition, with a few minor changes, is the basis for the Textus Receptus. Now, this text had made a few minor changes by a person named Stephanus and later Theodore Beza also used Erasmus's text with a few minor changes. Beza's ninth edition, which is essentially the same thing as Erasmus's third edition, became known later as the Textus Receptus. And this is the text, the Greek text that was used to translate the King James Bible. None of the above mentioned individuals had access to the oldest and most reliable Greek manuscripts that we have today. The Textus Receptus misses the wording of the original New Testament in about 5,000 places. Now, many of these are insignificant, but a few are substantial. Bruce Metzger, in his excellent work called The Greek of the New Testament, says this regarding the Textus Receptus. Yet its textual basis is essentially a handful of late, haphazardly collected minuscule manuscripts, and in a dozen passages its reading is supported by no known Greek witness. The Textus Receptus is not used by any modern Bible translations today. There's another method used for finding the Greek text. It's called the majority text method. The majority text method basically takes all the variants that we find in the different translations, and the ones that occur the most often are considered to be the original text, thus the majority text, those that occur the majority of times. This presents some grave problems if an error was copied more times in the original, then this error becomes the Greek text. And so uh, there's, there can be some problems using this method. This is not a very scholarly approach to evaluating the Greek text. And the reason we need a better method is because now, since the, the Textus Receptus was published some 300 years later, we have discovered numerous Greek texts. We now have upwards of 5,800 Greek manuscripts that have been discovered that we can compare and contrast and look at in order to evaluate which texts represent the original language. And serious Greek scholars need a better way to evaluate than just which one occurs the most often. Before I get into the method that's used now today to determine the original Greek text, I want to talk about some of the variations and, and this is the reason we have to have this method is because there's all these type of variants or variations that occur. There were some unintentional changes in the Greek text. These would be errors or mistakes in copying. When someone is copying they simply made an error in the text. Now you might say well how can we know we have the Greek text? Well or the original Greek text? It's because we have thousands to compare. We can trace these errors or mistakes backward in time till we find that which is closest to the original. So though they're unintentional changes, we have, to, we have to be able to trace those. And a better method than just the majority of times it occurs was needed. 
There were intentional changes in the Greek text, spelling or grammar changes made as the language changed. Now, this is not very significant because uh, the meaning doesn't change, but as the Greek language changed and spelling words changed and some grammar uses changed, the text was changed to reflect that, but it doesn't reflect or change in the meaning of the text. There were sometimes attempts to smooth out the reading, that is to make it easier to read. Sometimes there are places in the Greek text that are a bit awkward and they're hard to translate because of the way the the Greek was constructed. And so there were those who copied the text, particularly some of the monks in the monasteries who copied these texts, tried to smooth it out and make it sound smoother. Well, that's that's okay as long as you don't count that as the original. And so when we look at those changes, we have to try to go back. We want the original writings or closest to the original that we can get. There were harmonizational changes, that is attempts to harmonize passages that seem to contradict. So if two passages on the surface seem to contradict, sometimes the copyist would change one of them to make it fit. Well, obviously that's not what we want. That's not a correct use of the Greek language of changing the Bible. We want the original. And then sometimes there were doctrinal changes that were attempts to make certain passages fit into current doctrine. And you say with all these changes, wow, the, how can we know? There seems to be a, a mess here. Well, here's the method that is used now today by translators and Greek scholars to determine how we get to the original text or the closest to the original that we can get. It's called the text critical method or text criticism. And it evaluates both external and internal issues of the text. And so the method follows these basic principles. So when we have a variant, there's several different readings or two different readings of the text. The older reading is preferred. That's the number one thing. Now, older reading isn't always automatically received because we have to look at the other issues. The more difficult reading is preferred if it is sensible. And the reason for that is we know there was a tendency to smooth out the text. So if there's a more difficult reading, that is more likely to be the original text. The shorter reading is preferred unless it arose from an accidental omission or intentional deletion. So if there's a shorter reason, again, we know there was a tendency maybe to add some things. So we look at that and that is preferred. Notice I use the word preferred because we have to we have to put all of these issues into play when we're trying to evaluate that which is closest to the original. The reading which best explains the other variants is preferred. If we can look at a reading that explains how two different variants arose, then that reading is preferred. The widest geographical support for our reading is preferred. Again, now this isn't, you don't measure this on its own, but it, it's one of the things you evaluate. If there is a a reading that goes over different regions that is consistent, then that is preferred. Uh, the reading which conforms best to the author's style and diction is preferred. Sometimes you can tell a different style was used when someone tried to smooth out the Greek text. And so we, we look uh, at the, the pattern of that particular author. Authors had a style of writing and words that they commonly used. And it's not that they couldn't change those at times, but when you look at a letter, one of Paul's letters, what style of writing did he use in the book of Romans, so to speak? And you look at that, and that which is closest to his style of writing is preferred. And finally, the reading which reflects no 
doctrinal bias is preferred. If we know that there is a doctrinal bias impressed upon the text, then we don't use those variants. This is the process. Now, it's much more detailed than what I've given you here. And the point for you to know is that when we have variations in the Greek text, there's a process known as text criticism, which we can evaluate. We have thousands of Greek texts to look at. A scholar can go through all of these things so that we can get as close as we can to that original text. And all these are considered together in evaluating these different variants. It's both a scientific method and it's also an art. Text criticism is used to bring forward a Greek text today that is very, very close to the actual original autographs. Remember we talked about that last week. We don't have the original autographs, but we can get that which is very, very close to the original autographs. And the message that we have in the Greek text that we have today is that which God has given. Now I want to talk a little bit about the reality of these uh, variants because you we think about that. And, and this is one of the places where people attack. Some modern critics have said there are 200,000 variants in, in our Greek text. Well, this number is arrived at erroneously and is much exaggerated. This is how they come up with that number. If an error has, occurs and it is copied, say, 300 times, then that is counted as 300 variants. Well, that's not 300 variants. That's one. I'll give you an example. Bert Ehrman, in his book, Misquoting Jesus, refers to these outrageous numbers, saying that there's 200,000 variants. But if we used his method of counting variants, this is how it would work. In the first printing of his book, Misquoting Jesus, there were 16 printing errors. There were 100,000 copies of the book printed. Therefore, according to Ehrman's own counting method, there are 1.6 million errors in his book. Well, no one would count that way. You don't count. There were 16 errors. Well, that's how we would count the Bible. The variants that occur are not that many. There's more like 10,000 rather than 200,000. Now, that's still a significant number, but let's evaluate those variants. Now, they aren't all errors. They're just they're variations, and some of them are very minor. So here's how we look at those variations. Trivial variations that have no consequence to the text. These are minor errors in copying that can be easily explained. We used an example earlier of Romans 16.7, where the original, the oldest manuscripts, look at Junius as masculine, where the later manuscripts have Junia feminine. Well, we can go back and see that the oldest, most reliable texts are masculine. This was simply a copying error, and we can make that change. There were spelling changes as words changed. And again, when the Greek language changed, and they changed the, these to reflect that, it doesn't reflect at all on the meaning of the text. The text isn't changed by those. In Acts 18.24, some English translations translate the word Apollos differently. Some say Apollos, some say Apellus, some say Apollyonis, depending on the spelling of the Greek text that was used. Again, it's still referring to the same person. There's just a different spelling of the word. But it doesn't change the meaning of the text. An example of this would be in John 1.19, which reads, Now this was John's testimony. When the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. Now there is a word in the Greek language 
that is alta, which simply means to him. So when it says they went out, some texts say to him, some texts just say they went out. Now, obviously, whether the, the word to him is in the text or does not occur in the text changes no meaning. It's obviously they went to him. So these are the type of minor changes, these minor omissions that, that have no bearing on the text. And so the vast, the vast majority of all variants are of this kind. Minor errors that can easily be explained or have no bearing on the text. Then there are substantial variations that are no consequence to the text. They're, they're kind of substantial, but they still don't change anything. Uh, they're, they're of no consequence because the variants are not supported by the most authoritative textual witnesses, such as the presence or absence of phrases or sentences. You'll find some phrases that were added, but later we can clearly show that these phrases don't belong there. They're substantial, but we can prove that very easily by comparing all the Greek texts that they don't, they don't belong there. Sometimes they're different words of variant texts, so different words were used, but, but we can explain these very easy. An example is found in Luke 6, where one manuscript adds the following after verse 10. Man, if you know what you are doing, you are blessed. But if you do not know, you are cursed and a transgressor of the law. Only one or two manuscripts find this. The majority of the texts don't have it. It's something that somebody added somewhere along the way, but we can demonstrate that it's not part of the text. The oldest copies and the vast majority of copies don't have this verse. So it's not included. We don't, we don't put it in. And so there are substantial variations, but we can prove that they have no consequence on the text itself. Then there's some substantial variations that, that have some kind of bearing on the text. Acts 8.37 does not occur in the earliest manuscripts. It occurs in the Textus Receptus, but not in the majority of texts or any of the Greek texts today. And so you'll find, you'll look at, if you read the King James and then something like the NIV, Verse uh, Acts 8.37 doesn't occur. Well, it's because that verse is not found in the majority text or even in the majority of Greek text today. 1 John 5.7 was added because Erasmus had left it out, but many of his critics said he needed to add it in, so he gave in to the pressure eventually and gave it in. But anyway, these do not change any doctrine that we believe in. The, all these things I've mentioned to you, these variations change no doctrine, and this last group only represents about 1% of the text. So here's what people say about the text. When we evaluate it all, many scholars have verified the purity of the Greek text that we have today. Westcott and Hort, Ezra, Abbott, Philip Schaff, A.T. Robertson, all have carefully evaluated the evidence for the Greek text and calculated these various variants, and it has been concluded that the New Testament text is more than 99% pure. And those texts that we have questioned about affect nothing that we believe in. Westcard and Hort concluded that all the variants, only one sixtieth were of any concern. A.T. Robertson claimed the real concern is with the thousandth part of the entire text. Philip Schaff concluded that there are only 50 variants that are of any real significance, and there are no article of faith or doctrine that is not sustained by other undoubted passages. In other words, these 50 variants don't change any doctrine that we believe in. The Greek text has been preserved, and the few variants of concern do not affect any doctrine of the Christian faith. 
we have the message given by God transmitted to us in the New Testament. And that's a very significant thing. And it's significant that we have thousands of Greek texts to compare. No other document has so many documents that they can look at, they can compare, they can contrast, they can determine minor errors that occurred and go back to the original text. We have the assurance that what has been transmitted to us today is the message that God gave us through the New Testament writers. In conclusion, we have significantly more copies of the Greek New Testament than any other ancient document, and with so many copies, errors and variants that have occurred. But more than 99% of these have no impact on any meaning of the text, and of those that affect the meaning, none change any doctrine of the New Testament. We can have confidence that the Greek text we have today is the message that God intended for us to have. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you have transmitted this text to us. Thank you that we can have confidence, though there are critics and people who who try to deny the truth of the Bible, we can look and see through faithful scholarship that we have the message that you intended for us to have. The Greek texts have been transmitted to us and we have that which we can read and translate and interpret so that people of all languages all over the world can understand the message that you have for us. And we thank you for that. Help us to be faithful, to study your word and your truth, and to have the confidence that what you have given us truly is your message. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.